0: Hello, and welcome to The Curator on Monocle24. I'm Carlotta Rabello here in London. Over the next hour, we'll unpack the best reports and interviews of the week here on Monocle24. Coming up.
1: There will be some people who are forever grateful to him for, quote unquote, getting Brexit done. But as far as his handling, for example, of the pandemic is concerned, apart from the vaccine rollout, which, of course, in the end, you know, was caught up by other people, that was a disaster too. So I think all in all, his legacy will be a very negative one.
0: A tumultuous week in Westminster, as a string of MPs and government ministers resign from their post, leading ultimately to the resignation of their own Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Then we start our series on Roe v. Wade, following the Supreme Court's decision to overturn the landmark ruling. Plus, we talk about reconstruction in Ukraine, Vienna retiring its e one trams, and we look back to the legacy of Catalan architect Antoni Gaudi. Also ahead, a look back at the life and legacy of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who was killed this week.
2: Shinzo Abe was a politician of populist instincts and pragmatic intellect, an iconoclast's impatience and a traditionalist's temperance. The contradictions made him what he was, for better and for worse, a leader who changed his country, just not as much as he'd have liked.
0: All that ahead and more coming up over the next 60 minutes, right here on The Curator with me, Carlotta Rubello. This is the Curator on Monocle24 and I'm Carlotta Rabello. We began this week in Lugano, where the Swiss government played host to the Ukraine Recovery Conference. As part of that, we decided to explore lessons from around the world that might one day help inform Ukraine's own rebuilding efforts. On Monday, we looked at Aceh in Indonesia, which was devastated after a tsunami in 2004, but is now fully rebuilt. Monocle's news editor, Chris Chermak, caught up with Anidas Gupta, now the head of the World Resources Institute and then part of the World Bank's response effort in the region to ask what made Aceh's reconstruction successful and what it might teach Ukraine.
3: First of all, Aceh and Ukraine are vastly different places, right? I mean, and also, we are 16-year hands. It's a technology, everything's different. But the, I think the three lessons, if anyone asks me, as you're asking me, three lessons that I feel are very important that happened in just success if you go to Aceh today you wouldn't know there was a tsunami the reconstruction has been so successful and it's mostly credit to indonesian government and three things i want to say one is indonesian government did an absolutely brilliant thing they created a reconstruction agency a government agency but they didn't ask one ministry to do it they created a new agency they asked Kuntoro, one of the smartest officials, to head it and told them, You can construct a team you want from any agency you want. So he created an agency with the sole purpose of reconstructing Aceh. They were our counterpart and a very, very energetic man and a visionary man. The second thing that happened that was very, very good is the donor community. It was overwhelming, right, uh, in the beginning. I went there maybe less than a week after the disaster. And this was nice thing about the World Bank. We didn't go there. I and another colleague of mine went there. We didn't go there to check out the disaster because we've been we knew. The first thing we did in the middle of this complete destruction is to look for office because we knew we were going to be there for years. and we actually found an office. and so it ended up among all the kind of NGOs, we actually had an office where people would gather. So the second good things happened that informally and formally there was a very good collaboration among the NGOs too because otherwise it's overwhelming to the partner that if thousand people are coming and talking to them so there was an organization in housing reconstruction infrastructure, things like that which would be very helpful I think in Ukraine is to coordinate don't overwhelm the process by all of us going there let's figure out how to coordinate among ourselves that's trying to help Ukraine in a positive way and I played a big part in that coordination and bringing that together, and the bank did, and those relationships I still have, with the people I met there. And the third thing that happened and this is something I did a lot a lot of work on, and the, is we actually put together the best technical help for the reconstruction. And I don't know if, if your audience will connect to this at that point. There was a lot of skepticism in Indonesia that you know this consultancy with uh, private companies or large technical company, there's been a bad history in Indonesia, are corrupt, there's corruption here, we shouldn't do this. The outside are there in Indonesia. And we said, yeah, we need the highest quality technical because the bridge we are constructing today needs to be there for the next 20 years. There's no reason, there's not enough money for us to construct a bridge for the next six months and then we have to do the best the best investment is the best development investment and I had to work hard to convince people I did and we put a very good group of people there this would be the most important thing to do that the best science best reconstruction so that moment right now is to reconstruct Ukraine in the greenest possible way and that technology that expertise in Europe it's oodles of it to make sure that happens And I think that will happen, but to make sure that happens. So these would be my three things. A lot of things are not transferable, but these three things might be relevant while reconstructing Ukraine.
4: But I wonder if you drew any lessons in terms of the coordination between the local government and all of the international actors, the NGOs that you talked about coordinating. How important is it for a country to have agency over its own reconstruction
3: The only reason that Achei Reconstruction was successful, because it was led by Indonesia. It was led by this agency. It wasn't any donor. I mean, donors were secondary. Even the World Bank, which is the biggest player, was secondary. It was their reconstruction. It was absolutely crystal clear to every one of us, including me, that we were helping them reconstruct. And there was tension between this was a national government agency with the local government at the beginning, but Kuntura and others were very smart in figuring it out, involving the local mayors and things like that. And the local government knew that they didn't have the capacity. So they did a good job. So it was very much an Indonesian effort. This has to be an Ukrainian effort. There is no other way to reconstruct. And it has to be led by Ukraine. And there is so much leadership in Ukraine now to do this. It's just... It'll be an absolute mistake for the rest of Europe to say, oh, we'll figure it out for you. It won't be sustainable.
4: I don't think that'll happen. Do you feel international organizations, companies, understand that as well when they go in in a situation like this?
3: What I'm saying is in Indonesia, it didn't matter if they understood or not because the Indonesians were in charge. I mean, they understood after five days if they didn't understand on the plane when they arrived. No, this is the beauty of what happened. And that's why it's such a rewarding experience for me. It wasn't about what we did. There was not a single day it wasn't clear to me that we were helping and we were supporting. What I'm saying is they felt we were supporting them. And I actually don't think there's any other way to reconstruct.
0: Anidas Gupta there in conversation with Monaco's Chris Chermak earlier this week on the Monaco Daily. Now, the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling has been overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court, meaning that there is no longer a federal constitutional right to abortion. The ruling has created two Americas, the mostly Republican states where abortion is illegal in most circumstances, and the mostly Democrat states where it's mostly available with restrictions. But this divide in the U.S. will go far beyond abortion access, affecting anything from healthcare care, the criminal legal system and politics at all levels in the coming years, and as well as the outcome of the all-important midterms. We wanted to explore how we got here and what this means for American women and started by taking a look at when abortion was first criminalized in the U.S. and consider the changes that took place in 1973 in order for it to be enshrined as a universal right.
1: Now, with Roe gone, let's be very clear.
2: The health and life of women in this nation are now at risk.
3: We're here for a very simple reason, to defend the right of every child, born and
5: unborn, to fulfill their God-given potential.
6: I am very familiar with what it was like in the past, and of course the present is not going to be identical. I can see that many of the methods of enforcing these laws will be reestablished and along with new ways of going after people. And it is such an invasion of the lives of women and others who may or do get pregnant. It's impossible to enforce a law against abortion without going after women. The way they get evidence is from women's bodies. It's distressing knowing that there will be a lot of suffering.
7: Leslie Regan is a professor at the University of Illinois and the author of When Abortion Was a Crime, a history of abortion in the United States. Her work has charted not only the policies, but also the attitudes of those in America towards abortion. The issue of reproductive rights in the US is complicated and fraught, so we considered two key questions. Why did laws criminalising abortions spring up in the 1860s and 1870s? And, 100 years later, how have attitudes changed to the extent that abortion became a federal constitutional right? So, first, when did this become a concern in the American consciousness?
6: Abortion was not an issue in early America with the early settlers. Bringing back the menses, getting your period back, was something that was kind of a common practice among women. It's not until after quickening, when uh, the woman could feel movement inside of her, that that was understood to be a life inside. And at that point, if the child was quick, as they would say, then trying to eliminate that um, and induce a miscarriage was a crime. So it was completely determined by the woman herself.
7: This changed following a campaign targeted at the American Medical Association to form a committee on criminal abortion. It was initiated by a single physician, Dr Horatio Storer, a specialist in gynaecology and obstetrics and a professor at Harvard. He led a small group of doctors who were concerned about their competition from midwives and female doctors. Underlying this movement was a professional campaign to ensure that they were the only ones able to perform abortions if they believed there was a medical reason. But there's another aspect to this too.
6: The other part of this, they spoke of this in terms of the decline of native-born white Americans. And they were noticing that middle-class, upper class white married women were the ones who were visibly had smaller families, were having fewer children, and were going to these known abortion clinics. They say, you know, if they don't have children, who will be settling the great western prairies? And they're really talking about immigrants, Chinese, Catholic, the newly freed African American population. There's really you know, an anti feminist core and a racist, anti immigrant, anti Catholic core to this whole campaign.
7: That was when inducing a miscarriage or bringing your menses back became illegal. But there wasn't, at this point in time, a nationwide conversation about abortion. Clearly, 100 years later, by the time of the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling, this had changed. And the debate became national. How did we get there? Here's Clodagh Harrington, Associate Professor of American Politics at De Montfort University.
8: Historically, the US is a very individualistic nation. It has a very strong history of suspicion of government interference. It does not like, generally speaking, when the government interferes in anything relating to one's religion, liberty, property, guns, body, life choices, taxes, whatever. As sort of an interesting and almost contradictory parallel to that, you also have a kind of a progressive strand of U.S. history Particularly in relation to this topic, you have the birth control movement, which dates back to, you know, at least the 19th century. So you have these two kind of strands running parallel to each other. And there are points where there is a, a really strong pushback against the, the birth control movement. You have the Comstock laws, um, which prohibited contraceptive use and uh, even any advertising relating to the same. And then there's a great leap forward really in, in the 20th century, uh, specifically after the Second World War, as one, one might imagine. It was at that time
7: that birth control became legal and normalised. Plus, there were important structural and organisational developments in the post-war era
8: not least thinking about the International Planned Parenthood Federation, which became the world's largest family planning NGO, an enormously successful and well-respected organization, is still active in the US today, known as Planned Parenthood. So all of these things sort of push towards a momentum for change and for evolution. Also in the 1960s, and this transcends the United States experience, but there was a real fear, like a, a genuine concern amongst world leaders, entities and the like um, with regard to um, overpopulation, that there was just not going to be enough resources on the planet to, to cope with the ever increasing population. And what that brought was really quite meaningful debates with regard to population size and birth control and the like. Also, All through this time, you had, let's say the 1960s in particular, US abortions were were available, but they were not safe. And so, what you have also in that decade is the rise of the contraceptive pill and its kind of widespread availability. So, by the time that Roe versus Wade actually comes about, it is drawing on decades of case law that have come before. And so, what this means then is the ruling really just, you know, brings into play some meaningful control for women over their reproductive lives. It's based on the 14th Amendment of the US Constitution, and that is the right to privacy. So you have a kind of a dual aspect to it uh, based on the Due Process Clause, which is to do with protecting women's right to abortion. And fundamentally, it's about a woman's right to choose. This great leap forward was also the point at which the debate became
7: increasingly partisan and it was used as a way to influence new groups of voters to switch from the Democratic Party to the Republicans. Yet, the first efforts to repeal the criminal abortion laws in the late 60s and early 1970s saw Republicans and Democrats voting each way. Then, in 1973, the Supreme Court made a landmark decision.
2: Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. Thus, the anti-abortion laws of 46 states were
6: rendered unconstitutional.
0: And tune in on Tuesday for the continuation of our series on Roe v. Wade. This is The Curator. Now, there was one story that dominated the headlines for much of the week, and that was the chaos that was happening in British politics and with Prime Minister Boris Johnson. On Thursday, he announced he was stepping down, but wanted to stay as a caretaker PM until a new leader could be found. Shortly after the announcement, Andrew Muller caught up with Tim Bale, who's a professor of politics at Queen Mary University and the author of The Conservative Party, From Thatcher to Cameron. Andrew started by asking Tim if he thought this was the end of the line for Johnson.
1: I don't think there is a, a, a way out for him uh, this time. Uh, I think he'll be lucky if the Conservative Party allows him to carry on as caretaker prime minister, to be honest. I mean, if you want a caretaker prime minister, you want someone who is just there to you know, keep this ship uh, afloat um, without actually pursuing any particular uh, agenda. Uh, and Boris Johnson is not necessarily the person who can do that. So it, he may well find that actually they want him out and uh, replaced by an interim prime minister, somebody who won't um, be standing in the leadership contest themselves and will hand over to whoever uh, wins it. So, I mean, it's possibly uh, the case that Boris, in some kind of fever dream, thinks it's not over, but it's over. <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, while we speak, he is
2: attempting to restock his cabinet uh, after the desertions of the last 36 hours. Uh, Might he be thinking that if it comes to it, he can stand again for the leadership?
1: Well, I guess since he hasn't been defeated in a vote of no confidence, uh, technically he, he could do so. He wouldn't stand a chance of winning. Uh, I mean, I, I think he really would have to be capable of the most incredible self-delusion, um, bordering on derangement <laughs> if that was the case. Uh, you know, I, I think you know, Boris Johnson's often compared to, to Donald Trump, but I, I think, you know, there is a basic difference there that, uh, you know, deep down, he kind of knows what he's doing. Uh, and, you know, he, he doesn't necessarily think that uh, it can be salvaged now. I can understand why Dominic Cummings is saying what he's saying, but I, it just strikes me as, as um, you know, unlikely now. Uh, I think he knows the game's up. And, and and really, as I say, it's for the Conservative Party to decide whether they want this guy there. Over the summer, um, you know, he's not the person that you would normally choose to look after the the shop or house sit for you while you were away. Uh, Well, indeed not. But assuming that the party
2: or a plurality of the party doesn't want him parked in Downing Street for the next three months, what options are presently available to them?
1: Well, um, good question. Um, there aren't really very many, actually. If he absolutely insists on staying, I think it will be quite difficult to, to wheedle him out. Uh, you know, the only uh, thing that they could do is somehow offer him some kind of incentive. Who knows, a seat in the House of Lords, uh, for example, uh, that, that, that might persuade him to go sooner rather than later. Um, you know, uh, lesser individuals have been known to be tempted by a peerage and, and Boris Johnson might be as well.
2: I mean, this is a a particularly long throw, which does get us into some weird deep state areas. But could the Queen sack him?
1: Yes. I mean, she could um, not necessarily sack him directly, but she could simply um, be made aware by the Conservative Party that a majority of the Conservative Party's MPs um, favoured another candidate who could command a majority, both of them, and therefore a majority in the House. And she could appoint that person as prime minister. Uh, so, uh, although it might look a little bit weird, I think it would be possible for someone to go to the palace before Boris Johnson <laughs> went to the palace to <laughs> to be behind the seals of office and and kiss hands with the Queen. Uh, it strikes me as unlikely, um, but it's it's possible.
2: But and indeed, funnier things have happened. Many of them in the last thirty six hours or so. Um, we do at least, I think, can be reasonably certain that we have the prospect of a Conservative leadership contest. To- look forward to. Um, Based on your understanding of the the dynamics and historical trajectories of the Conservative Party, would you want to place a bet on what kind of qualities they will be seeking in their next leader? Will this be a a Thatcher to Major sort of transition, i.e. you go from a period of upheaval and turbulence and rancor to somebody who seems a bit less divisive?
1: I think that has to be the case. I mean, I think they do want probably a less polarizing figure, which might make it perhaps more difficult for someone like Liz Truss, who is, you know, seen as a bit of an ideological... Uh, warrior uh, and it it might be difficult i think for some of the other declared candidates like uh, whether they're serious or not suela braverman who you know is is keen on pursuing this kind of culture war i'm not sure that's necessarily what uh, the, the country needs right now and i think conservative mp's are thinking about the next election you know they are looking at the the opinion polls they are looking at by elections uh, they're going to need someone who can keep together the electoral coalition that boris johnson built in in 2019 and that poses a bit of a problem actually because if you um uh, listen to what some of those um people who are going for the leadership are saying about tax cuts you know and, and the inevitable implications that has for public spending um, you know, we could see the prospect of a kind of thoroughgoing Thatcherite elected, whether it be Sunak, whether it be uh, Sajid Javid, whether it be Liz Truss or, or, or some of the others. And that I don't think is going to be very helpful in keeping all those so-called Red Wall voters uh, in the Tory electoral coalition.
2: You said earlier that you did not know the mind of Boris Johnson, and indeed, nor do I. But I think it is a reasonable assumption that one of the things underpinning his reluctance to leave uh, is that that he does have some appreciation of history. He does have clear ambitions of being recalled as one of the United Kingdom's great men. And I think he probably, unless he has totally lost his mind, understands that his premiership has not been a rousing success and that he desperately wants an opportunity to turn it around. Nevertheless, if this is his lot, um, how would you quantify his legacy and in what sort what of cohort would you rank him in the pantheon of British Prime Ministers?
1: Oh, I always thought he was unfit to be Prime Minister. I always thought he would be, uh, you know, make a terrible fist of the job. Uh, I think, you know, when we do these rankings and sometimes, you know, <laughs> academics are asked to do these rankings. And so are journalists, as you know, I think he'd come way down there, actually. I mean... You know, there will be some people who are forever grateful to him for, quote unquote, getting Brexit done. Um, But uh, as far as his um, handling, for example, of the pandemic is concerned, apart from the vaccine rollout, which, of course, in the end, uh, you know, was caught up by other people, um, you know, that was a disaster too. So, uh, you know, I I, I think uh, all in all, his legacy will be a very negative one.
0: Tim Bail there in conversation with Andrew Muller earlier this week. But how did we end up in a situation where Prime Minister Boris Johnson had to resign in the first place? Let's stay with Andrew because he has this week's edition of What We Learned for us.
2: We learned this week the names of quite a lot of hitherto unfamiliar members of the United Kingdom's House of Commons and the titles of the entrancingly recherche ministerial and sub-ministerial portfolios they occupied. We learned of these as the ship of state was deserted by an unseemly scramble for the lifeboats following, apparently, one collision too many with an easily observable and readily avoidable political iceberg perpetrated by a captain who had long since been operating the helm like a man with patches over both eyes. So we learned for the first and very possibly the last time of such if you will titanic oh. talents as Mims Davies Minister for Employment, Rachel McLean Minister for Safeguarding, Will Quince Minister for Children and Families. Oh
4: oh
1: we're not Will Quince, surely not. How will we go on changes?
8: This, this changes everything. What are we going to do? Surely do. not.
2: Steady on, it gets worse. Selene Saxby, Parliamentary Private Secretary at the Treasury. Virginia Crosby, Parliamentary Private Secretary at the Wales Office. David Dugude, which might be pronounced like that, but really, who cares? Trade envoy to Angola and Zambia. And tempting, though, it is to just read out the full list of 52 mutineers. No, sorry, 53. Hang on, I'm hearing 54. By way of padding out this week's monologue, because it's easier than continually rewriting the script to try and keep up with whatever mad nonsense is occurring now, we shall press on. Though we would like, at this time, to make it clear that if any or indeed all of this has been overtaken by events by the time you hear it, then you too can blame Boris Johnson. Certainly, everyone else is. Can I get some general muttered agreement? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Before we learned that a hefty cohort of the Conservative Party had only just learned what anybody who had paid any attention to a quarter century's worth of accumulating evidence had long since learned, i.e. that Boris Johnson was irresponsible, duplicitous, unprincipled, disorganised, and in no respect psychologically or morally equipped for the office he held, or arguably the office anybody has ever held. We learned that these very suddenly furious colleagues of the Prime Minister had learned this in perhaps suspicious proximity to two recent by election losses, but better late than never. <coughs> but we learned, however, that the inspiration for this exodus intended, at least initially, staying put. And I think we have a sound effect of furniture being pushed up against a door left over from the end of Donald Trump's term. We learned that Boris Johnson, to bound elegantly from our earlier nautical metaphor to a theatrical one, was refusing to leave the stage, despite much of the audience leaving the building and much of the crowd that remained in the stalls directing a hail of empty bottles towards the figure capering in the spotlight. Uh, I cannot, for the life of me, uh, see how it is responsible just to, to walk away from that. But we did learn of some unlikely pockets of support for Johnson as he stumbled perilously over that line that separates the merely beleaguered from the downright embattled. We learned from the always entirely reliable source of Daniel Kaczynski, Conservative MP for Shrewsbury and Atcham, that the Prime Minister remained well-regarded by his constituency's vendors of home cleaning appliances.
9: When I was in Curries, in shrewsbury on saturday buying a new vacuum cleaner i had uh three employees in that building come up to me and said you've got to stand by
2: Boris you've got to you've got to back Boris now you think there's a joke about a power vacuum coming but there isn't as mr kavchinsky has rather spoiled any such gag by using the word vacuum in the setup which would dilute its impact in any prospective punchline if he'd said hoover or used some other brand name we'd have been straight in there we don't just crank this stuff out, is what we're saying. We learned eventually that Boris Johnson would acquiesce to the inevitable, but not until October, which may give him time to start a war with Scotland and declare martial law or something, which wouldn't really be significantly stupider than anything which has occurred in the last 72 hours, or indeed the last three years. I've travelled to every part of the United Kingdom, and in addition to the beauty of our natural world, i found so many people possessed, of such boundless British originality. But we learned when we consulted the history books that unprecedented though this on-clinging seems, there is a precedent, sort of. Back in 2010, following a not entirely decisive UK general election, the then-Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, seemed for a time disinclined to go. We also learned that one prominent commentator of the time channelled widespread outrage at the wretched, ridiculous and undignified spectacle of a Prime Minister barricading themselves into number 10, despite clearly becoming surplus to requirements. Twelve years ago, on the op-ed pages of the Telegraph, this upstanding sage spoke for a bewildered nation with solemn and stentorian words which will now be read by Monocle 24's leaden irony desk chief Carlotta Ribello.
0: The whole thing is unbelievable. As I write, Gordon Brown is still holed up in Downing Street. He's like some illegal settler in the Sinai Desert, lashing himself to the radiator like David Brent, haunting the office in that excruciating episode when he refuses to acknowledge that he has been sacked. Isn't there someone, the Queen's private secretary, the nice policeman on the door of number 10, whose job is to tell him that the game is up?
2: You tell us, Boris Johnson, for it was, inevitably, Boris Johnson who wrote that. You tell us. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller.
0: Thanks, Andrew. You're listening to The Curator.
1: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over
9: 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
1: To find out how we could help you, contact us at ubs.com.
0: You're listening to The Curator, our weekly highlights program here on Monocle 24, and I'm Carlotta Rubello. Vienna has officially retired its iconic old red and white trams. The E1 model had been in operation since the 1960s, but it just couldn't compete with the newer trams for comfort, accessibility and speed. Some of the cars will be put up for sale, while others will be taken apart for scraps or turned into museum pieces. This week, we decided to dispatch Monaco's Alexi Korolyov in Vienna to investigate.
9: In Vienna, it's the end of an era. Or rather, the end of the line.
10: The E1 was here for more than 55 years and uh, it was a really good tram we had no troubles with them people loved them very much because they were really iconic but we will still have red trams in vienna in the next years but they are uh, air conditioned and barrier free so it's going to be much cooler to ride the trams in vienna
9: vienna has the sixth largest tram network in the world and the red and white e1 model has come to define the look and sound of the city.
10: The bim-bim. There is a very iconic bim-bim with the old drums.
9: But now, after more than half a century, Vienna's transport company Wiener Linien is taking all of its remaining E1s off the tracks.
10: My name is Lisa Schapelwein and I'm from Wiener Linien.
9: And why has it taken so long to update the system and bring in new, uh, more modern trains?
10: Usually trams can get like 40 years of service, but the old E1, they were already here for 55 years, so really long. And our trams have intervals from three to six minutes, so we really need a lot of trams. And we are extending our network all the time, so that's why we needed the old trams longer, but now, that we have um, more new trams, the old ones can go to retirement. Mm.
9: You personally, as an employee of Vienna Linien, how do you feel about this? You, are you going to miss them? Uh,
10: in summertime, I'm actually not going to miss them because I really enjoy riding with the new ones with the air-conditioned uh, trams. <laughs>
9: <laughs> Vienna is already using Bombardier-made Flexity trams in addition to a substantial fleet of Ulfs, or ultra-low floor trams, manufactured by Siemens.
10: The Flexity is our newest model, uh, and we are getting more and more of them. Uh, Right now, they are only operate in the southern part of Vienna, but as soon as we get more of them, they will be in the whole city and will be our new iconic vehicle. They are still red, so... (laughs) red and white, so you can still have the Wiener Linien flair (laughs) on the trams.
9: But the BIMs won't be leaving Vienna's streets just yet. The E1's slightly more modern cousin, the E2, will remain in use for the time being. But somewhere down the line, it too will roll off into retirement. A report there by Monaco's
0: Alexei Korolyov in Vienna. This is The Curator. Let's turn to Monocle on Design now, where this week Charlie from visited a new architectural project that brings a slice of Finland to the very heart of London.
4: Victoria Embankment Gardens is a tiny stretch of green in London, sandwiched between the River Thames and the Strand. On warm days in the capital, it's a nice spot for office workers to enjoy an alfresco lunch. However, considering the traffic on the surrounding roads calling it an oasis of calm is probably somewhat of a stretch. That is, until now. That's because Finnish architect Sami Rintala has teamed up with the School of Architecture and Cities at the University of Westminster to bring a sauna to this bustling part of Zone 1.
11: We like to work with the students and uh, teach future architects the best possible way which is making things, making architecture. If you need a nice function, and we come from Finland, we have obviously only one choice, (laughs) and this is the sauna. We are doing the most obvious thing, but we are doing it well.
4: On the day of my visit, the team were putting the finishing touches to the structure, ahead of its opening to the public the following day. With little time to waste, Sammy even greeted me whilst working on the roof of the sauna. Despite such a tight deadline to meet, he took a few minutes to talk me through the project and its
1: importance.
11: The most important thing here is that this travels on a, on a trailer, so we have a maximum transport size and weight that limits us. and This is why the rooms maybe at first uh, seem uh, quite small, but if you enter the sauna, which is the biggest room of these three you will realize that it is uh, not only very comfortable, uh, smelling nice of uh, fresh cut wood, but also reminding of the London tube, which everybody knows very well. So this uh, project, we call it the finish line.
4: Sammy and the team designed the sauna, encompassing cultural aspects from both London and Finland, and saw the project through from start to finish, even assembling it
11: themselves. These days, uh, wood has become really expensive because of the world situation and transport uh, problems. But we were lucky enough to get this uh, wood from UPM, which is a Finnish producer, and they donated all this uh, Finnish pine. It is very solid wood to use, but not too solid, so that we can still cut it easily with hand tools. On the site we only use hand tools, but this, all the wood has been CNC'd, uh, milled, so it has been a lot of uh, lab, laboratory work, and this is where uh, Westminster University FabLab comes along. They are very good at this. Most of the work actually has happened in a cellar in Westminster. Mm-hmm. We are working with very precisely milled wood, and when you are setting them together you need also the same precision in the setting, and. Precision is a beautiful thing, but it also creates challenges, because wood is not a precise material. It bends, warps, uh, it gets wet uh, and gets bigger, and so to a certain extent you can be precise with certain things, but you should know when and where, really. So normally we are not that precise, because we are using sawn timber, not milled timber. This is more like uh, furniture making this time in big scale. You shouldn't make a sauna ever too tight and too airtight. It has to be a bit open structure, like a wooden uh, Japanese sake cup, which is just turned upside down. That's maybe the best image. So the floor, for instance, doesn't need to be very, very tight. The heater as well, it should be of good quality, but everything else you should play with. I think it's a bit like Italian pizza. It's a robust idea, and then you can put anything on it, and still it's a pizza. Of course, in some uh, occasions, you can't call it a pizza anymore, but uh, I think the sauna is the same thing. You, you should just find your own version of it. The
4: sauna is a vital part of Finnish culture, with Finns using them as a chance to relax and decompress, as well as for the plentiful health benefits they offer.
11: I read also an article two weeks ago from The Guardian saying that uh, sauna is now really... Uh, making a breakthrough here in Britain. So I think it's more about uh, appreciation of certain uh, things in life that you you can allow yourself to relax and take good care of yourself and and blend cultures. This is what it is. It's always been like this. You already learned uh, bathing, uh, not by yourselves, but also from the Romans already. And now this is the second wave or third or fifth wave. Even the kind of Turkish English bath was a victorian thing and so it's just a repetition of the old but in new forms
4: as well as having a successful practice of his own sami is a passionate educator and a veteran of more than 200 educational workshops as such he understands the importance of providing opportunities like this for students
11: well this uh, workshop uh, design and building method is extremely good for the students. They not only learn about the materials they work with and the tools, they also kind of demystify the construction site at the same time because it's a bit frightening for young architects to enter building world. They also learn how to work together, how to respect timetables and budgets, Uh, It's very important things also in architecture. They see quickly what the design means in reality, what went wrong also. I've been doing these workshops, this is number 239, in uh, 25 years. So I've been learning, and I all the time learn new things, even now. Then, so it never stops the learning. Confucius uh, in China a long time ago said that if you hear a thing, you forget. If you see a thing, you remember. If you do a thing, you learn. And I believe in that. We hear
4: now from Roberto participant in the sauna project, who told me how valuable this experience has been for him.
11: This was a really unique chance to like take part in the sauna project. Everyone had their input, so we basically proposed ideas and then we thought how useful were the ideas and evaluate if they will work or not and have feasible work for us to build it within like I think a week and a half. So obviously you need to kind of be realistic. So we basically try to simplify the project as much as possible and make it really good visually, but then also being able to construct it within the timeframe, which is a challenge as well.
4: The Sauna project at its core is simple. However, it does manage to encompass many fundamentals of design. In essence, reminding many of what architecture looks like at its most pure. Here's Sami again
11: architecture good design is always a background never a thing itself and i think we forget this a little bit nowadays that everything tends to become quite expressive and you are kind of curating architecture and art but i think good design is always a theater stage for the people to perform
4: for monocle in london i'm charlie filmacourt
0: A highlight there for Monocle on design, which of course you can listen back by heading over to monocle.com. You're with the Curator, our weekly highlights programme here on Monocle24, and I'm Carlotta Rabello. This week, the team behind The Urbanist kick-started the show's summer series, uncovering the legacies of the biggest names in architecture, city planning and design. For episode one, they took inspiration from the legendary Catalan architect, Antoni Gaudí. Here's Monocle's Andrew Tuck.
4: It appears that the willingness to take risks and innovate permeates the whole chain in Barcelona, from architect to client, materials to municipality and as you might have guessed by now Gaudi was no stranger to trying things a little differently either.
12: One of the ways that you can really identify Gaudi's architecture is when you look at the other buildings and you see Gaudi's building you usually see a lot of tourists around them that's the first way of you knowing that this is a Gaudi building another one is that it's completely different. Like, it's entirely different. Like, everything is so different. Maybe his first buildings are a little bit more integrated, but they're usually so colorful. They have a lot of symbolism. You can truly see natural inspiration in them. Gaudi, one of the phrases that he said was that originality is going back to the origins. He never innovated for the sake of innovation. This wasn't his philosophy. And one of the principles was that everything that he did had to be functional, it had to make sense, it had to have a logic behind it, and it had to be studied. So he would look at all of the technologies available for his challenge. And only if he didn't find a technology that didn't serve his purpose, he would invent it. So, for example, this happened to the arches. He studied the Gothic arch, he studied the Roman arch. He saw that they were not as efficient and as useful for building the buildings that he wanted to build. So he invented the catenary arch. And the reason why we are still continuing to build Sagrada Familia was because he also innovated in the way that he built Sagrada Familia. He knew that he wasn't going to finish his vision because his vision was to build the perfect church and he knew he wouldn't finish it. So what he did instead of building it floor by floor, he did it vertically. He built one of the facades first so that people could see how beautiful and big and incredible the church would be. They would fall in love with it and they would want to continue building it afterwards. So I think it was one of the examples of crowdfunding in the area because it was completely built on the nations, and until now they are charging a ticket to continue building, but before it was all the nations.
5: In the Catalan we have two words to define the characters, the el seigne y la rauxa. And that means uh, in one side to be very rational, but in the other side to be very crazy and very creative. So that's part of the character. But one of the incredible things, and that's why Cerda or Gaudí and other people were here, is that crazy people do real things. And that's important. It's not that crazy people talk about the future and make some strange things, but they never do make anything. But here, because also Barcelona was not the capital of anything, at least in the last 300 years, that means that it's like New York, it's a place where the civil society uh, wants to represent their wealth through projects, having an opera house, having El Palau de la Musica, so having La Pedrera, that means that the, the bourgeois were investing in very creative people to represent their wealth. And then from that point of view, that's part of the character, no? it's, in one hand being very rational but at the same time very creative and i would say that the designs of Gaudí sometimes we can imagine that they were like 100 years earlier because he was doing organic architecture as maybe Frank Your wright and other people were doing where he integrating only one a structural element, everything that you need to make a building, while the modern architecture, the Corbusian zone, was separating the different systems in order to make the overall solution for the building.
0: Finally today, we remember Japan's former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. Mr Abe died at the age of 67 on Friday after being shot during a political rally. Monocle's Andrew Muller looks back at the life and legacy of Japan's longest-serving Prime Minister.
5: The Games of the 32nd Olympiad in 2020 are awarded to the city of
2: Tokyo! In the summer of 2020, Tokyo was supposed to host the Olympic Games. For Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, it would be the capstone of his premiership, the longest in Japan's modern history, and a keystone of his legacy, a country refashioned in his own image, at least up to a point. Fate in the form of the COVID-19 pandemic intervened. The Tokyo Games were postponed. A few weeks after he should have been beaming beatifically at the closing ceremony, Shinzo Abe resigned. His health had let him down. A recurrence of the ulcerative colitis, which had long plagued him, necessitated treatment which would have prevented him from giving his all to the job. Abe bowed and apologised to Japan's people for failing to complete his term.
9: I wasn't able to solve abduction issues involving Japanese nationals. It is indeed a source of regret.
8: The peace treaty of Russia, constitutional amendment. I'm going to leave my status without achieving all of those ambitions and targets.
2: Shinzo Abe was born in Tokyo on September 21, 1954, the scion of political dynasties on both sides of the family. When he later became Japan's longest-serving prime minister, he overhauled his great uncle, Aiseku Sao. Abe was the first of Japan's post-World War II prime ministers to have been born post-World War II, a fact which in many respects defined his outlook. Abe bristled at insinuations that his country had moral debts outstanding.
8: Adding, we must not let our children, grandchildren and even further generations to come, who had nothing to do with that war, be predestined to apologise.
2: He had perhaps reasons for being insistent that the sins of the father, and especially the grandfather, not be visited upon the son. Abe's dad had a relatively blameless war. Shintaro Abe, who finished high school in 1944, did volunteer for training as a kamikaze pilot, but Japan surrendered before he could take off on his one-way flight.
9: Upon which surrender of the Japanese imperial forces is here to be given and accepted...
2: He went on to a successful political career, rising as far as Minister of Foreign Affairs in the mid-1980s. Abe's grandfathers, however, were a more mixed bag. His paternal grandfather, Kan Abe, was a member of parliament who had sought, during World War II, to overrule the militarist headbangers and bring the conflict to a close. His maternal grandfather, Nobusuke Kishi, had been the fearful colonial overlord of Manchukuo, Japan's pre-war puppet state in China. Kishi was imprisoned after the war for three years as a Class A war crime suspect but never tried. By 1957, He was Prime Minister.
9: At the White House, President Eisenhower and Japanese Premier Kishi sign a new treaty elevating the one-time foe to full status as ally and equal.
2: None of which was Shinzo Abe's fault, though it does perhaps say something about modern Japan's reluctance to fully acknowledge the behaviour of its imperial forebear. One struggles to imagine post-war Germany electing as Chancellor a figure broadly comparable to Reinhard Heydrich or indeed anyone who had ever addressed such a monster as Grandad. The young Abe diligently qualified himself for a life in the family firm, studying public administration and political science. After a brief stint as a salaryman with Kobe Steel, he began his ascent of the greasy pole. He was elected to Parliament in 1993, just before turning 40, and became Prime Minister in 2006, not long after turning 50. Abe's first stint as Prime Minister was short. He had not been elected in his own right. He'd succeeded Junichiro Kosumi as president of the Liberal Democratic Party. Abe was unwell and unpopular. After just one year in office, he resigned. That, many assumed, himself possibly included, was that.
4: Down and now out. Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe being rushed to hospital less than 24 hours after announcing his resignation suffering its thought from exhaustion.
2: It was not. Abe stayed in the Diet, Japan's parliament, and kept his seat in the 2009 general election when a great many of his LDP colleagues lost theirs. Shinzo Abe has led his Liberal Democratic Party to a landslide victory in the Japanese election. By September 2012, he was once again leader of the party, and this time of the opposition. In that December's general election, Abe was able to pitch himself as older, wiser, a man who had grown into the role he sought he won a thumping victory. Markets reacted well to the election result, with stocks continuing to rise. Abe interpreted this landslide as a mandate to restore stability at home and presence abroad. Nobody doubted the need for the former. Between Abe's resignation and his return, Japan had churned through five prime ministers in as many years. The latter was a tougher sell, not least to many of his fellow citizens. Abe loathed the post-war constitution imposed on Japan by its American conquerors in the 1940s.
6: Particularly Article 9, in which Japan denounces war and prohibits its military forces being deployed in overseas conflicts.
2: He felt that the imperative to pacifism was a long-redundant punishment. He wanted Japan to be a normal nation, a respected power, and able to look after itself in a fractious neighbourhood, increasingly menaced, By the ambition of China and the impulsiveness of North Korea.
6: He added that he will protect the country's seas, territory, and airspace and continually correct Japan's security policies rather than being bound to convention.
2: He had his triumphs. His so-called abe stimulated Japan's longest period of economic improvement since the war. This success and the perpetual disarray of his opponents saw Abe's LDP thanked with two further hefty election victories in 2014 and 2017, although Abe's own approval ratings often tanked during various storms and scandals. His personal holy grail of constitutional reform eluded him, however. Shinzo Abe was a politician of populist instincts and pragmatic intellect, an iconoclast's impatience and a traditionalist's temperance. The contradictions made him what he was, for better and for worse. A leader who changed his country, just not as much as he'd have liked.
0: Well, that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced and presented by myself, Carlotta Ravello, and our sound engineer was Jack Jewers. Join us again next week to hear highlights from our coverage on Monocle 24. Thanks for listening and goodbye for now.